Turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. As Josh mentioned, uh, we've made an adjustment, to, an adjustment to the preaching schedule. You can get that uh, new schedule up at the welcome table if you'd like. Uh, we were originally planning to do 9 and 10 today, but we'll be doing a much shorter portion, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. While you're turning there, just a um, word for you about Church on Mill. You heard Pastor Josh pray for them. We pray for them um, regularly. We've uh, had a number of people go down there to Grove Conferences, Simeon Trust Conferences. Um, myself, Pastor John, have been greatly uh, affected and helped by our friendship with Pastor Chuck down there. Uh, that's a unique church. Not only is it the church where Brad and Lynn Penner were wed, that is a fun fact for you. <clears throat> um, it, it's also a church right there on the campus of Arizona State, and they've got a college ministry, really an evangelistic outreach to college students, and they will often see in one calendar year students come through their doors from over 40 different nations. It, it's really um, been a great work used by God to have students come there. A number of students every year get converted there or won to Christ, and then they end up going elsewhere, maybe even back home. And so, uh, as we understand God and His great commission that the ends of the earth would know about the salvation of His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, God's used that church historically to help accomplish that. So, uh, just when you think about it, pray for them. Um, if any of you are ever interested in hosting some of those students for like a Christmas meal or Thanksgiving meal or a Resurrection Sunday meal. They actually have people um, that do things like that. Th these might be unbelieving students but are connected to that church, uh, and they would love to come to, a, to an American home and learn American traditions. Foreign students are very excited about that type of thing, and so what better home for them to come to than to a follower of Christ's home. So, if that's ever something you're interested in, let me know and I can put you into contact with Jordan, the, uh, the ministry leader down there at Church on Mill for that. It's a neat opportunity. Okay, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Familiar words to us, if you've been a Christian for um, any considerable length of time, you know these verses and they're greatly encouraging to us when we understand the background of them. So, Sometimes familiarity breeds kind of a lackluster response. Yeah, I've heard that. I kind of know the idea. Uh, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would teach this to our hearts afresh, as it were, and that we'd understand what the Lord is trying to communicate with us today. Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when the, they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Because to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I've entitled this message, The Final Glorious Government. Some of you know that in my previous life, I was a United States government teacher. One of the things we would do in class is rehearse the, the benefits, the positives of certain types of governments and also their weaknesses. We'd look at totalitarian governments and look at their weaknesses. One person in control of everything, oftentimes for their own benefit. But sometimes totalitarian governments could be blessings and benefits. If you had a good leader that was in control of everything and a good leader that cared for their people, that could be a blessing, theoretically. Democracies, we tend to like democracy for good reasons. People being in control, people electing leaders that, that represent them well, people having a say, people having a voice. But there are also weaknesses in democracies. The, the French student of American democracy, Alexis de Tocqueville, came and looked at American democracy and was pretty impressed with it early on. And he said, but, but its downfall, and I'm paraphrasing here, but its downfall will be when they figure out that they can vote to give themselves money. <laughs> yeah, that could be a weakness of a democracy. A certain form of government is never to be the guarantee of peace and stability forever. I hope your hope is not in a form of government. Forms of government come and go. In Isaiah 9, the people of God, Judah, are threatened by different governments, the nation of Israel, the nation of Syria, even Egypt is mentioned, and then the greatest superpower of them all, which is being amassed, Assyria, is a threat to them. And Isaiah 9, 1-7 says, hold on for a moment, turn off the news, put down the newspaper, I've got a government for you to look at, and it's the government of God, the government of His Son, Jesus Christ, and it's a beautiful picture of how God rules and what government should look like, and it's a government that only God can bring about and only God can see to completion. Its effect can only be caused by God. It's a beautiful picture. We're given in Isaiah 9, 1-7 a picture of a final glorious government. This is the last government that will exist, and it will exist forever. This is what we will be under. You you might say, you know, I I was born in this nation or that nation, or I'm an American citizen, and 
you know, that this is the government that I'm under. Well, if you're in Christ, you being part of the government of Italy, under the government of Italy, or the government of the United States, wherever it is that you have lived or do live, that's only going to be this long. The government that you're going to live under forever is the government with King Jesus at its center. It's going to be a literal physical government. He's going to rule in a new heavens and a new earth. Prior to that, a millennial kingdom where He rules on this earth again, and things look a lot better than they have. That's going to be the government that you're mostly going to be under. And so it's important to look at the nature of this government. I can teach you, as I did in former days, how a bill becomes a law in the United States government. I can teach you about how Congress works or the court system works. But, but one day soon, that'll all crumble down. And this government, detailed in Isaiah 9, will stand forever. So let's learn about this government for one morning. And hopefully, let that continue to shape our thoughts as we live our time in this world. We're going to look this morning at life under Christ's rule. What's His government look like? Life under Christ's rule. And so, we're going to think of ourselves in a very special way as citizens of His kingdom this morning. Now, again, that could be cliche to many of you. I, I get it. I'm a child of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. But, but how often is that at the forefront of your mind? Well, for the next little bit, it will be from Isaiah chapter 9. We are citizens of a different kingdom. As Pastor Josh read earlier, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This kingdom will always stand. So, life under Christ's rule. We'll notice, we'll look at this uh, passage in two parts. First, the way Christ's people feel. This government actually makes us feel differently. And that's important to see. The way Christ's people feel, 9, 1 to 5. And then in the last two verses, 9, 6 to 7, the way Christ rules. So His government is meant to do something for His people, the way we feel under His government. And then in 6 and 7, let's look at the nature of that government, the, the way He rules, the way Christ rules. First, the way Christ's people feel under His government. We start off learning that gloom will be eradicated, darkness will be done away with, light will shine, joy will increase when God moves to save His people. Remember the last verses that we read last week? Look back at the end of chapter 8, 8.22. This is talking about a people who rebel against God. And they will look to the earth for solutions, for security, for answers. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness, appointing uh, 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 to future judgment should they continue to look for their salvation on the earth. So darkness, 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 gloom, anguish. Just in the last verse of chapter 8. And then we come into chapter 9 with a but, an adversative. But hold on a second. There will be in the future no gloom or no more gloom for her who was in anguish. There will be a people who were in anguish because of what the darkness of this world had been giving them. 
but there will be a people, a remnant, who will come to salvation, and no longer will their, will their lives be characterized by gloom and anguish and darkness. They'll be characterized by light and even by joy. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Now, you need to, you need to know a little bit of geography here. Bibles with maps at the back are great gifts, by the way. Thumb through those maps occasionally. If you look to the back of your Bible or look at a map during this time, the, a map of the Middle East during the time of the, Assyr- the Assyrian domination, the Assyrian rule, you would notice that Judah and Jerusalem are in one location. Just to the north of them are the ten tribes of Israel, who are still the people of God, but they're acting a lot like God's enemies. They're, they're going to come after Jerusalem, God's people. So, there's been a break in the people of God, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem is the capital there, and the northern kingdom is currently threatening the southern kingdom. And so, Isaiah is written to the the southern kingdom, Judah, again, where Jerusalem is. But he also prophesies to the northern kingdom as well who are meant to be the people of God, but they're acting like God's enemies and even God's people's enemies. And so, in the north, you've got Israel. In the south, you've got Judah. So, Judah, south, Israel, north. Now, Assyria was even further north and a little bit east from Israel, and they're this superpower mopping up territories, just grabbing different nations and taking them for themselves. And so, the, before they got down to Judah in the south, they would have to come through Israel. And so, this prophecy is written about that. And so, these lands, Zebulun and Naphtali, are up in the north. Zebulun and Naphtali would have been the first places that the enemy would have come and hit God's people. The front door, if you will, to the house, the driveway to the house. They're they're there at the front. Before they get into the house, Jerusalem, Judah, they're going to come and get Zebulun and Naphtali. So these citizens of Zebulun and Naphtali were constantly threatened by invading forces. They were the first of God's people to be threatened by invading forces as these people would come down from north to south. So he says, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, later on, he's actually made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So, he's saying this area has so often been threatened, been minimized, been been taken over by God's enemies, but there's going to be a later time When this way of the sea, which is how the enemies would have referred to it, this way of the sea is going to be glorious. The place where the people of God were threatened first will be the place that receives salvation first. 700 years later, a child is born in Bethlehem. He's raised in Nazareth. And when it's time for him to publicly start to declare that He's the Messiah, He's the King that Israel and Judah have been waiting for. When it's time for Him to do that, He packs up and moves away from Nazareth. It's really fascinating, actually. Go to Matthew chapter 4. 
the context of this is, again, remarkable. Matthew is writing to show that Jesus is Israel's king. Hey, Israel, Judah, you've read Isaiah 9? There's a coming king? Matthew writes to say, I'm going to tell you about him, King Jesus. Early on, Jesus is introduced as a child, and then he's baptized. Now think of Israel here. The nation of Israel was called the child of God, the, the, the son of God. They were freed from their enemies, Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, a picture of purification and salvation. They go through the Red Sea. Now their enemies have been destroyed. They've been washed clean. Now they're in the wilderness. Time for them to obey and represent God and to show Him off. Does Old Testament Israel do that well? No. Enter Jesus. He's born. He's baptized. Washed comes out of the water, where does he go right then? To the wilderness. Just like Israel went through the Red Sea and went into the wilderness, they failed. Wonder if he'll fail. Satan comes to tempt Jesus three times in the wilderness. He overcomes the temptation. He overcomes the temptation. He overcomes the temptation. Oh my goodness, we've got a son of God who's perfect. We've got the true Israel, if you will. We've got what Israel should have been. And so then you're sitting there going, what's he going to do now? He's the righteous one. What's he going to do? Are we going to start with the healing here? Are we going to start with the casting out of a demon? No, we're told that Jesus packed a U-Haul. We're told that he moved. What in the world? Get to the healings. Get to the freeing people of demon possession. Why is it important that he moved Let's look at Matthew 4, verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, where he grew up, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of, you guessed it, Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he gives our passage the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So this is Matthew saying, remember what was prophesied back by Isaiah? This land that was so often in tumult and threatened and shaking because the enemies were coming, there's going to be a day when a child's born and someone goes to that land, this child goes to that land, and there's no more shaking to be done. Salvation's going to be brought to that land. And so Matthew starts his gospel by saying, here we are. Here he is, the Savior of the people of God. But it's more than that, isn't it? See, this land of Zebulun and Naphtali in Israel up in the north, this land, because it was a kind of a a buffer area between the people of God and then the Gentiles of the north. This land often had the people of God, the Jews, and it also had Gentiles in it. And so Jesus packs up his U-Haul. He literally would have packed bags 
and traveled from Nazareth to Capernaum. We know that he moved there and lived in Peter's home. He, he packs up, goes into Peter's home. Here I am, new dwelling, new residence. And what would that area have looked like? It would have looked like a lot of Jewish people and a lot of Gentiles. And just in that, we get a picture of who Jesus is. He is a Savior for Jew and Gentile. And Matthew shows us that right at the beginning of his ministry. And he's pointing us back to Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, one day, a child's going to come, and he's going to rescue this region, God's people. And he's also going to rescue people from the nations as well. That's what Isaiah is showing us. So back to, well, actually, before we turn back, don't miss this from verse 17. Jesus is now moved. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now again, think Isaiah here. Oh, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Syria, the kingdom of Egypt is coming. Assyria is coming. They're shaking because of all these kingdoms. Jesus comes to this land and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is now here. This is, a, this is a different day now, friends. And so, we're brought back to Isaiah 9, and we learn that there's going to be a day coming for the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and it's going to be a day that goes from gloom to glory, from darkness to light. And we know now, because we know about Jesus Christ, that happened because Jesus came there. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one to focus on. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Talking about a future reality. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. The Hebrew here is fascinating. It's trying to get you to see dark, 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 dark. It's been dark, but there's light. But now there's light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. These people would have felt helpless. How in the world are we going to survive Assyria? Nobody is surviving Assyria. And Isaiah is saying, just wait. Just wait. There is a light coming. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Again, this is a prophecy of what's to come. They've been so scared. We learned last week in chapter 7, they're shaking like, like trees in the wind. They're so scared. But again, at the end of chapter 2, a light's shown, a light, a picture of God's favor. God's favor is going to shine on them. Verse 3, He's going to multiply this nation. Now, this is, this is the opposite of what's to be expected when Assyria is coming after you. When Assyria comes after you, you're not thinking, I'm going to multiply and grow and flourish. You're thinking, I'm going to be destroyed, the opposite of multiplied. I'm going to be subtracted in math terms, not multiplied. I'm going to suffer. The people are going to suffer. 
But in the future, Isaiah is prophesying, you've multiplied the nation. When Jesus came to earth uh, 700 years later and moved to Capernaum, people from this region would come and follow Him and become citizens of heaven, the nations now being multiplied. So when Isaiah says, it might not seem like it, you might think the nation's being subtracted from, but there's going to be a day when God's favor shines and the nation's multiplied and you see people following Jesus, and this is a fulfillment of that. You've multiplied the nation. And it's not just that He's multiplied the nation by going to His own people and some of the Jews believing in Him and being citizens of heaven, but He's also added other nations to the people of God. Jesus' kingdom and ruling is starting to expand and broaden. You've multiplied the nation. You've not just multiplied them in number, you've increased its joy. When you become a citizen of heaven, when you become a follower of Jesus, He's your new King. It's meant to lead you to joy. That's why I entitled this first point, The Way Christ's People Feel Under His Rule. There's a joy. Just go back to the very basics of our salvation. Go back to when you were saved. You were enslaved to sin, you wanted sin. You didn't treat the people around you like you should. You had that old heart that you were originally born with, but then when He saved you, rescued you, He took the shackles off. You no longer have to sin. You then had to sin. That's, that's just what you were drawn to. And the magnetic force was such that you couldn't break it, but Jesus could. And He comes and gives new life, breaks the pattern of sin, breaks the enslavement to sin, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. He breaks that enslavement, and now you're His, you're freed. And therefore, that leads to joy. I'm free. We just sang, now why this fear? Why this fear and unbelief? And then the line, be still, my soul, and know this peace, the merits of your great high priest have brought, have bought your liberty. Jesus has made you free, no longer enslaved to sin. And this is a fulfillment of this prophecy. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Remember I told you the previous verse, there's an emphasis on the gloom and darkness? Gloom, dark, dark, uh, big time darkness. Well, here in three, the people of God who are under the rule of this coming child king, have their joy increased, they rejoice before Him as with the kind of joy you have at a harvest, a great harvest, great abundance, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Notice the two things that give the people of God a certain joy. It's as if they always have this bumper crop. (laughs) Back in Isaiah's day, If it didn't rain, things didn't grow, you didn't eat, especially if trade was affected by other nations and threats around you. And so Isaiah is saying, the people of God are one day going to rejoice as if they always have all the cucumbers they need and the apples and the wheat. They have all they need. They're going to rejoice one day that they have all they need. 
But it's not just harvest language. It's also military victory language. Notice, end of verse 3, they rejoice before you as with joy as at the harvest. God gives us everything we need as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is God defeating His enemies and saying, here, they controlled this, now you control it. They managed this portion of the world, again, in the future kingdom of God, we are going to rule and reign with Him. Hey, this corrupt government controlled this whole region. God's going to one day say to His people, you manage this region. You take over this area. You're in charge. You enjoy what they had. You will make use of it for good purposes. They used it for their own purposes. This is a future picture for us. Isaiah is trying to comfort this people. I know it seems gloomy now, but there's going to be a day when you're going to have this joy as if all the crops keep producing for you, and the nations are going to come down, and you're going to take the resources and use them for God's glory. That's what it's going to be like to be saved by this King that God will bring. Verse 4, 4, and he goes back to the darkness of God's people, For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, oppressor, you have broken, just like you did in the days of Midian. So right here, Isaiah is saying, listen, the people of God have a history. They've got a history of being enslaved. Those phrases, yoke, staff, rod, that would have brought their minds back to Egypt. You were enslaved. Your backs were heavy with the work. The rod of your oppressor was there. But the people of God knew, but God rescued them from that. That's why Isaiah brings this up. Just like he rescued your forefathers from Egypt, he'll rescue you from Assyria. Just like he rescued Gideon and the small army from Midian, he'll rescue you as well. That's what he's doing here. Verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. They come with their boots on. They come with blood on them because they've taken over other nations. But God will destroy that. He'll destroy their military weaponry. He will not allow Assyria to have the last word. This is what Isaiah is saying. So notice... Living under Christ's rule, Him in charge, Him governing you, Him governing His people, is, is supposed to lead and is going to lead His people to a certain joy, and they're going to know His favor on them, light joy. The way Christ's people feel under His reign is that they rejoice, and they know His favor is upon them. He'll take care of their enemies. I think it's important to remember that as saved people, we're actually commanded to have joy. And sometimes it just means that we need to reframe our circumstances and to see them through a biblical lens rather than how we're tempted to feel in the flesh. This is happening to me, that's happening to me, I don't feel joy. But come to passages like this and recognize that Christ is a warrior for His people. Christ is a Savior for His people. He's freed us from the enslavement to sin. Rehearse those things about Him and find the joy come back 
That's right. I have nothing to fear. Like you, I'm around people and we're around each other sometimes where we talk about the woes of this world. Do you read this? Do you hear that? Oh my goodness, this might happen. Just lately as I've been going through Isaiah, I've been telling myself this phrase when I start to hear those conversations, think those conversations in my head. Yes, all that is happening, but, but I have this phrase, but He's for me. This, this thing that people are afraid of might happen. Yeah, inflation's horrible. Uh, elections aren't bright spots anymore. Um, troubles around. Sickness happens. But the one who's in control of everything and has a plan is for me. He actually, the ruler of this world who's allowing things to happen for his purpose, actually loves me. And I cannot be separated from his love. I can go through hardship. He's got a plan. I can go through hardship knowing he loves me. And every child of God, every Christian today should be able to look at the world and see, oh man, that's bad, this is bad. But he loves me. He he sees me differently than the rest of the world. I hope you feel that because it's true. Isaiah is writing to a people who are shaking and he's trying to show them there's going to be a coming, coming government one day where you're going to realize the favor of God's on me, the light, and you're going to find joy in that. That's why 350 years ago, the Westminster Assembly, as they were writing a document, a catechism to help instruct one another in the faith, started, started with this question. What is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I love this. Our King is not some angry ruler just telling us, do this, don't do that. Our King acts, saves for our joy. He does. Friends, it's a beautiful picture. Our God, our real and actual living God is for our joy. And Isaiah is trying to communicate that here. And we today, in 2024, have the privilege of seeing how that started to unfold in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and saved, and these people were brought a joy. So friend, because God's favor has shined upon you, in the salvation given by Jesus Christ. Find your joy there. I know there are hardships. I know there are troubles, but you are Jesus's. You are God's. You have a king who loves you. And, and spoiler alert, go down to the last verse. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zealous nature of God. He is zealous to bring his people salvation. He's going to do this. He's going to fulfill His plans to save His people and bring them joy. He's committed to this. It's a beautiful picture of what our God is like. Let me me say a word specifically to young people here. 
young people that have grown up in Christian homes. I hope you do not think that Christianity is about what you can't do and what you can do. Christianity is about the fact that we've all blown it. We've all gone our own way. But God has been zealous to bring a salvation to us that leads us to joy in a relationship with Him. That is what Christianity is about, a people that God pursued when we did not deserve it so that He would save us and bring us a joy as we live under His good and gracious rule. That's what this is all about. God is for His people's joy, their comfort, their security. He's a good God. There's no one like Him. If you are currently struggling to find this joy, I'd encourage you to go back to the basics of salvation. What's He done? Think about the fact that He's freed you from the power of sin. He's freed you from the penalty of sin. You deserve God's wrath in hell forever. And Jesus absorbed all that for you. Go back to that and let that remind you of the fact that in 750 years, in 10,037 years, in 30,842 years, you will be God's, and you will love Him, and that love will never diminish. Your fascination with Him will never wane. His goodness to you will never go away. You will always be with your Father. Go back to those basic truths. So we've looked at the way Christ's people feel under His government. Now let's look point number two, about the way Christ rules. Let's look about the nature of this government. Let's understand it a little bit more. What is Christ's leadership like? The names given to Him in these two verses give us an idea of what He's like. Sometimes presidents and kings like to take names upon themselves to kind of reveal what their rule has been like. The great uniter, a title given to a leader who unites people. Well, the names given to God's coming servant, and we know him to be Jesus, the names given to him speak to his kind of rule. And so again, a lot of people think of God today, and even Christianity, as responding to a God who is harsh, vindictive, maybe grumpy, temperamental. Those are all lies. These are the names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who God is, and this is how He rules. But before that, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Again, think of the original hearers. Hey, person living in Zebulun and Naphtali. What's life like? I'm afraid of Egypt. I'm afraid of Assyria. I'm concerned. I'm shaking. I got good news for you, citizen of Zebulun and Naphtali. A baby's going to be born. How is that good news? 
I'm looking at some of the most powerful kings that have ever lived on the planet, and you're encouraging me to find security in a baby. Yes, now you're getting it. We know who the child is. It's Jesus Christ, God Himself taking on human flesh. Why did Jesus come as a child? Why didn't He come as a mighty warrior right away? Because He's showing that His way is gentle. He knows the lowly. He comes to them. He's going to grow up and live the perfect life that we should have. He's going to be the perfect two-year-old. Imagine that. The perfect 13-year-old. The perfect 30-year-old. We're going to see God as we see Jesus on this planet. We're going to know who God is. And the Old Testament saints would have certainly known of His power. The Red Sea. They certainly would have known that He was the Lord of hosts. The Midianites went down. They would have known His power clearly. And if they would have thought about it, they would have seen so many examples of His gentleness as well. But when Jesus comes, you're going to see all of that. You're going to see His power. You're going to see His gentleness. You're going to see all of it. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is going to be this people's hope. His answer to the powerful, power-drunk bullies of the world is not to match them in their bullying, it's to come as a child and say, this is the way I'm going to conquer. I'm going to be lowly and conquer that way. And you'll see this. And the government shall be upon His shoulder. He'll be able to carry the weight of ruling for His people. You'll see this, Isaiah says. And I love this. This isn't the first time we've heard of shoulders. What do we just see in verse 4? The yoke of His burden, the, this, the, the troubled one. The yoke of His burden and the staff for His shoulder and the rod of His oppressor you've broken. The people of God have often had their shoulders weighed down by enemies. They've had their shoulders weighed down by their own sin. They've been weighed down. But Isaiah prophesies someone who will take the ruling of his people onto his own shoulders. We are not meant to bear the burdens of the world. Listen, friends, we're not even meant to bear our own burdens. We can't do it. Have you ever said something like, I can't get through this? Well, you're right. That's why we must look to the one who came to bear our burdens. He came to bear our burdens. 1 Peter 5, cast all your cares, all your anxieties on the Lord, off your shoulders, onto His shoulders. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. This is a beautiful picture of our Savior. He came to take the burden off of us, to put Him on His shoulders. Do you see this in Matthew 11? Again, Matthew showing us that Jesus is this King that Isaiah has talked about. And Jesus comes and appeals to people to come to Him, find salvation in Him, find rest in Him. And He'll take the load off of their backs and put it onto Him because He says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. 
He is gentle and lowly for people with burdens, the burdens of their own sin, the burdens of the world. Come to Him. Find rest for your soul. He's gentle and lowly, but oh, He's powerful enough to bear your burdens. He's both at the same time. What a Savior we have. What a Savior. The government will be on His shoulders and His name, and then we get four names. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And this is better than your friend who's got good advice. He's that to the perfect degree. Anything that God ever tells you is right, is the best best path to follow. Wonderful counselor. And in this word here, it it doesn't just mean that, man, he's got some really good advice, like the best advice. No, no, it's more than that. It comes with a power. That's what this word is getting at. God can say and tell His people what to do, and He's also got the power to see His plans come to fruition. That's the idea here. It's not just that He gives good counsel, and He does, all wise God, but He arranges and plans things so that they will lead to the best for His people. You think of advisors to presidents, maybe foreign policy advisors. Think of names like John Foster Dulles, Henry Kissinger, these experts in foreign policy. You picture them in the Oval Office wearing their dark suits and telling presidents, you know, watch out for this and that, and we should move this fleet here and do this. They've got advice, and they're wonderful counselors in a sense. They know a lot about the world, but they can't, they don't have the power to then achieve final salvation security for the people. They can say, I think this might happen, but they have no ability to control that situation at all in and of themselves. I can tell you what I think Russia and China might do, but I've got no power to control them. Wonderful counselor is a term given to someone who knows everything and also has the power to control it for the good of his people. That's what it's like to be a Christian and to be under the rule of Jesus Christ. He's our wonderful counselor. He tells us what to do, and He can move heaven and earth to make sure that we are taken care of and secured. A a little picture of this is when Jesus came, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but told His disciples after a long night of fishing, hey, let me in the boat, let's go out a little while and fish, and they hadn't caught anything all night. And he tells them, put your nets on the other side of the boat. They put their nets in. The nets can't contain the fish. That's a little picture of wonderful counselor. He tells them what to do, and he can mobilize the resources to benefit them. It's a little picture of this wonderful counselor idea just in Luke chapter 5. He can tell you what to do and can make it happen as well can bring the blessing of obeying that. Just the call of salvation is an example of that. Repent and believe the good news that Jesus is a Savior. And those of us who are Christians have heard that. We've repented of our sin and believed that Jesus is a Savior. Why do we believe? Because He made our hearts alive. So He gives us a command And He also enables it to be done and to bring blessing for His people. Wonderful Counselor. This is who we serve. 
He's also mighty God. Jesus Christ is the mighty God. Now, the nations of the world had their gods. Assyria had their gods. But the God of Israel is different. He's the mighty God over all gods that can destroy all of His enemies and all of their gods. So, why would this have been a comfort to God's people? Because you could pick any threat. I mean, you could take Assyria, Egypt, Syria, take any nation and allow them to come together in one big army with one objective, destroy God's people, and they will be the underdogs. He's the mighty God over it all. We even see this in prophecy in the New Testament about a coming day, even future from now, where all the armies of this world, we think that they're so fractured and there's hostility all over the world. Oh, they'll agree on something one day. They'll agree that they're going to come and do away with God's people, and they will be the underdogs, and they'll be destroyed. This is what's taught. Why? Because He's the mighty God. They are the little g-gods. He's the mighty God, and He is mighty for His people. You see this in Mark 5. Jesus came, and there was a man with a legion of demons, many demons. Satan, God's chief enemy, controls this man in a way that is multiplied, a legion of demons. And Jesus is the one that sends the demons out of the man. Evidently, Jesus is more powerful than a legion of demons. Of course, He's mighty God. So Isaiah prophesies about it, and in Mark, Mark shows us the details of that. Yeah, here He is. Look what He did. Look what Jesus did. This is great. You can go to um, look at history to see this. Um, Ashurbanipal was the last great king of Assyria. Ashurbanipal, again, the Scriptures know of this man. Ashurbanipal uh, was known as the king of the world before he died. Yeah, oh, that's great. You can't keep yourself from dying. Uh, and if you do die, you can't raise yourself back to life. Well, Ashurbanipal, um, you can… The British Museum had an exhibit a few years back um, uh, called I Am Ashurbanipal, I Am the Great King, something like that. It was titled. And you can see um, elements of his rule. Well, one thing he said, he, he wrote a poem about himself, which kings often did then and, and now. Um, I am Ashurbanipal, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, king of the four regions of the world. Friends, Ashurbanipal is dead now, and Jesus Christ is alive, okay? I don't care how powerful any person thinks they are. They might be powerful for a few seconds, but it's only because God allowed them that power, and God is the one who is the mighty God always. So this is the one whose government we are under, the mighty God who's mighty for His people. And then we're told of the everlasting Father, speaks of God's fatherly care in perpetuity that always continues. So, 
again, people think they know what a Christian's God is like. And they think harsh, exacting, cruel, or they might not, not think that bad of him. They might just think difficult to get along with. Let the Scriptures frame who God says He is. He is wonderful counselor. That's a benefit to His people. Mighty God, that's a benefit to His people. Everlasting Father. Sometimes we like it when the bully stands up to a bad person. But the bully's a jerk too, and the person saving us from the bully is a jerk too. We just want a bigger bully. That's not God. He is mighty God, but He's also fatherly. He also cares for His own. All throughout the Old Testament, you see God the Father caring for the oppressed, caring for the widow, caring for the orphan. That's what He's like. And He judges people who don't care for those people, who don't care for those in need. The lowliest people, the lowliest, born in the wrong place, not able to function the way other people can function, the lowliest people are cared for by God. And when God saves a person, He tells that person, now you care for the lowly like I care for the lowly. He's a father by nature. God the Father has always had a son, Jesus Christ. He's always cared for someone else. That's who He is. And for His children, for us, we are to know Him not just as mighty, not just as wonderful and all-wise, but we're to know Him as Father, everlasting Father. Some of you have had people that have cared for you very well, a spouse, a mom, a dad, a grandpa, a grandma, and they've gone. He's everlasting Father. He never stops caring. He can always be gone to. I, I know what some of you are like because I'm like you. Um, sometimes you feel like, I just need to talk to this person. Answer my texts. Answer my call. I need to talk to you. Nobody will always be available to us, but He is always able to be approached, always able to be appealed to. He's everlasting Father. That's why I love it when Jesus gave His great commission to His disciples, and just before He ascended to heaven, He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. It might seem like I'm going up to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. I will never leave you or forsake you. Why did Jesus say that? Because that's what God is like. And when we see Jesus, we see what God is like. He's a father who always cares for his children. Finally, he's the prince of peace. God's rule brings righteousness and justice to a realm which brings peace. We were shown peace by God, weren't we? At the moment we were saved. Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the, get this, ungodly. That should say godly. God gave his favor to the godly. It doesn't say that. While we were weak, troubled by sin, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Christ is a peacemaker. He makes peace with his enemies who don't deserve it. That's what it's like to be under the rule of King Jesus. He's given you a favor that you have never deserved, but he gives it. He's a prince of peace. We certainly know about the peace between God and man that he's made. We also know that his rule, living under his kingdom, which we all live under as Christians, living under his rule, living in his kingdom, means that we are then at peace with one another, or at least should be. Living in his kingdom means it's a kingdom of peace. We're, so, we're very quick to amen that. Yes, he's shown me peace. He's reconciled himself to me. But he means for that to be extended to one another as well. This is what his kingdom is like. It's a kingdom of peace. And Christianity does not teach that we have peace because we don't have problems. Don't think that. That's a lie called the prosperity gospel. If you just have enough peace, all problems taken away, loans paid off, health. No, no, no. We have peace at the same time that we have problems because we have our God who is our peacemaking God, and He's for us. Right before Jesus died, He told His disciples this, I've said these things to you, and these have been hard things. I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Our peace is found in Him even while we have tribulations. He's a Prince of Peace. He rules for His people. And then the passage ends, verse 7, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. When Jesus comes, His government is going to only increase. There's never been an era since Jesus, last 2,000 years, where people have not been being saved. His kingdom is growing. I love reading reports about what God is doing around the world in different spots and seeing His kingdom growing. More people coming to Christ. That's a fulfillment of this. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. You can't stop His kingdom. He doesn't have term limits. You can't control Him. You can't control the spread of Christianity. You can't stop it. He will keep saving His people. This world is dark, but He by nature is light and has to shine in darkness. That's who He is. You can't stop Him. Praise the Lord. Of the increase of His government of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He made a promise to David. You're going to have a descendant who rules forever. And Matthew has shown us that when Jesus came, he was born in the line of David. So this everlasting king does come from David. God's promise to David has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You cannot stop God's king. You cannot. And this is a kingdom that will continue forever because it's upheld and established in justice and righteousness. This isn't a kingdom that lasts forever because they bribe the right people or bully the right people or scare or threaten the right people. This kingdom lasts forever because it's a kingdom based on justice and righteousness. Righteousness and the right way to be will have the final say because that's what God is like and that's what His rule is like. From this time forth 
and forevermore. And then again, I already gave you the spoiler alert. How will all this happen? How can all this happen? Will all this happen? Oh, the zeal of God Himself will make sure all this happens. He will bring to the earth someone who is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace. He will defeat His people's enemies, and He will show His people that they can trust Him, and He will bring them home and care for them like a loving Father always cares for His children. He will bring salvation to His people because that is who He is. He cannot see His people suffer and turn them away. He will bring salvation to them. It'll look dark, but He is zealous for His people. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You and I were introduced to King Jesus because He was zealous for our salvation. So when people ask you, how did you become a Christian? We often want to tell them the circumstances, the earthly circumstances. Grandma told me about Christ as I grew up. And that's true. A Sunday school teacher would always talk about Jesus. Faithful youth leaders, people in church would always point to Jesus and teach me that although a sinner, I can be saved by God. That's all true. But here's the question. But why did grandma do that? Why did the youth leader do that? Why did someone walk up to you in the park and introduce you to Jesus? Why did that happen? Because of the zeal of God Himself. You are going to know me. I'm your Savior. I'm your security. I'm your Father. This is our God. So, we see what His kingdom's like. We see how we feel in this kingdom, joy, favor upon us. We see what the kingdom is like. His rule is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so, that needs to impact Monday morning, going to work. Some of your moms taking care of kids, figuring things out. We've got doctor's appointments. How does this help us today? Christ came showed us what it's like to be under His care and under His rule. So when you look at the threats out there, the difficulties out there, I want your mind to go back to what you know about the God who rules over you and loves you. He's a wonderful counselor. Listen to His Word. He's a mighty God. Everything that threatens you that is of the enemy will come to an end one day. He's mighty for you. He's everlasting Father. You've got a Father who doesn't grow old and sick and isn't able to care for you like He once did. No, He's everlasting Father. He's always there to give you strength, and He's Prince of Peace. You're at peace with God. You are at peace with God. That should change our perspective on things this week. There's a famous story. I don't know how true it is, but I'm a preacher, so I'll say it. Um, <laughs> Handel wrote Messiah, that is the true part, um, 
and you know in Handel's Messiah there's this great um, recitation of this passage, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the story goes that King George II, when that was played in London, at that moment, uh, stood up. The, the, his government would increase, um, and, and people think that he stood up in, in homage to Jesus Christ, recognizing that. Um, some people say he was just uncomfortable, it was a long piece of music. We don't know the answer. But here's what I do know. These words, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the increase of government will know no end, those are meant to get a response. So whatever the king did and why, I don't know. But for me, that's meant to draw my attention to Jesus Christ. My prayer for you throughout the week as I've been thinking about this passage has been that in troubled times, we would all grow in our ability to look to this king quickly, more quickly than we do. It's one thing on Sunday morning to think about Jesus, but let's get to Thursday when the difficulty happens midday. How quick do you look to Him? Think about this type of rule that He gives to His people. And how frequently do you think of that? That's my prayer for us, that the intent for the people who first heard this would have its fruition in us. Things might be causing us to shake, but listen, this is my King, and my King's for me. Let's pray. Father, help us to see who Your Son is and for that to impact the way we see Assyria around us, whatever that may be. Thank You for Jesus Christ. Thank You for fulfilling prophecy. And thank You for promising that there is even more to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.